Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos HSI familia and welcome to Que Pasa HSIs. Today we are talking to Doctora Sandy Lopez who serves as the director of the Undocumented Student Resource Center at Northern Illinois University. Sandy, thank you for taking the time to be here on the pod with us. We're super excited to hear from you. Um, so let's go ahead and get started and let's hear about your higher education journey. Tell us about how you got into higher education. Thank you for having me. Love the podcast. A huge fan. As I said earlier to you, I'm fangirling in this moment, but I am so excited to be here and to share a little bit about my journey, my story, and what we can do to better support our students. So my higher ed journey, I am the daughter of, a, of an immigrant father and a borderland mother. My mother was a Tejana. <clears throat> they were both migrant workers. Uh, my dad actually, I always joke about my father learning English in Mexico and my mom being a U.S. citizen and living in the border and not learning English. English. And so my mom and dad, when they move to Chicagoland area, they actually come, they stop being farm workers and they raise their family, <clears throat> but my mother doesn't speak English. So we're put into um, a bilingual program. And I can't remember when it is that I learn English fluently, but I do remember that my mother begins to learn English when I do. And my mother had no formal schooling, but even though she had no formal schooling, she valued education. My parents they knew that a degree was important for social mobility. They knew that we needed to go to high school. And then and then that was their big thing, right? Because back then it was, you have to go to high school. So I go into a program, a bilingual program. We move when I'm in the third or fourth grade from a predominantly Latino, Latina neighborhood to a predominantly African-American neighborhood. They don't have any type of ESL, ELL programs. So they put me in speech therapy to fix the way I speak. And that was the wording they used to fix how I speak. And so they worked hard on getting rid of my accent. And that was all I got, my little brother and I, as far as services was speech therapy. Fast forward uh, to fifth grade, I go to a predominantly white, we moved to a, a white neighborhood, and my school is a very, you know, it's located in a very affluent white neighborhood, and this is the first time I understand that I'm poor. I had never known what it meant to be poor. I, no one had ever pointed it out. Everyone around us was experiencing the same thing. I end up at this, you know, white middle school and then go on to uh, a white high school and everyone around me is, you know, majority white people. Um, and so I'm in high school and I'm bused from a predominantly uh, black neighborhood. I missed the testing day. They put me on all the remedial classes my first day of school. Not knowing that I love to read. I had a tia who instilled the value of reading in me and helped my language bump up high, you know, my comprehension, the, the language I use, it just skyrocketed after spending a summer reading with her. And I'm putting all those remedial classes and I'm told, like, what, what's going on? I'm thinking to myself, you know. And so I run into a woman one day. I'm walking down the hall. She said, why do I always see you in the hall? And I said, oh, because I'm going to the library. I finished my work early. And she said, well, what do you mean you finish early? She sends me for additional testing because I had missed the, the test date. I had been in Texas with my family and I missed the testing date. So they saw I was a brown girl from this neighborhood. She has to be in remedial classes. They test me and I get bumped up to a new track. Because now I have homework and now I have to do stuff. And my mom's like, oh, por pendeja, you should have just sat there. And I was like, no, mom, I have to really do this work. And she's like, okay, okay, ganas, right? So then she starts. And so that, that is my first, you know, bit of barrier where I see like, oh, just because they're making assumptions about who I am, right? Keeping in mind in all of this, when I get into this, this school system, I don't see my my culture, my language. I don't see it valued. If anything, I'm mocked for what I'm eating, for what I'm wearing, and I begin to reject that. And they teach me to not love my own culture, right? There's shame that I feel for the first time. And then I, I start thinking, well, I don't want to eat chorizo tacos anymore for, you know, and I start pushing back and I tell my mom like, no, don't make that anymore. But damn, I love my mom's food, you know? And they, so they take that experience from me. They take that. And I begin to want to be like everyone else around me. 
It's not until I get to college. Keep in mind, I only apply to one college, which is NIU. I love my institution. I can't tell you, there is not a bigger fangirl than me when it comes to my university because it has helped me so much. And it was the first institution that I applied to, the only institution I applied to really. Um, I, I only went on campus the day I was going for orientation. And so I, I go to NIU and I take a Spanish class and they introduce me to books by Sandra Cisneros. They introduced me to a book by, you know, Allende, by, and, and uh, Julia Alvarez. And I'm like, what is this, right? I pick up a book one day called Drink Cultura, and I have to go find it because I have, don't have the copy anymore, but it's a, the author's talking about being a Chicano and it's like 26 essays or something, right? And I see myself for the first time and I'm like, there I am, right? There I am. And so... Fast forward, I, you know, I'm, I become a teacher for the deaf. Uh, that was my journey too. I end up going into, into deaf education. I end up working with deaf kids and it's there that my Spanish, I start using it more and I see the value because I'm translating for Spanish speaking parents with deaf children and they start placing a value. And it's my professors who are saying, wow, you speak Spanish. That's going to be worth your weight in gold when you go into the profession. And finally, someone validates it. I end up at NIU my first year. I didn't know what I didn't know. No one taught me how to be a college student. No one helped me. And I almost failed out. And so I find myself on academic probation my first year. And I don't know what to do. And I go and I ask for help. I swallow my pride. I'm like, pues no tengo de otra, right? My, my mom says, no tenemos de otra. We had to go back. And I had to, that letter came to my house. And I said, no, no, no. This degree is not just mine. This is my family's degree. And as an undocumented student said one time, they said, the bachelor's is, is for our family. The master's, that's mine. But that PhD, that's communities. And so I was like, okay, what do I have to do? So I go back and I start getting tutors. I start, and I pick it up. I change my major. I realized, you know what? Physical therapy, not for this girl. I'm, I need to be a teacher. And I picked the right major, right? I start using my resources on campus. I graduate. I teach deaf kids for seven years. And then I go back for a master's in instructional technology. And then in 2010, I find myself at the Latino Center, working as the assistant to the director. And I'm there that I meet undocumented students and I see Latino students who don't know how to navigate higher ed. And I feel like this is where I belong. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I've been working alongside students ever since. Now in my position, I do not just work as, a, you know, working, helping Latino students. I help students from all backgrounds because being undocumented is not an ethnicity, but I am helping first-generation students. And the predominant, the majority of the students I do help are Latino or Latina or Latinx identifying individuals. So that's a little bit about me and my, my journey. It's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing with us. There's so many, uh, if folks could see me, I was like just hearts and, and very, very excited um, by your, your very beautiful story. So thank you um, for sharing with us. Um, and as we start to think about HSIs, I was, as you said that you told your mom not to make you the chorizo tacos anymore, I was like, oh, I hope at HSIs, we actually embrace that, right? Like, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, because the reality is we want it to be the opposite, right? We don't want people. We don't want people to feel like they can't bring their culture to campus, right? If we if we really are an HSI, um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing all that that uh, story. So let's talk about servingness then. So you didn't attend an HSI, and actually, you don't work at an HSI. You're an emerging HSI, which we're going to talk about. Um, so how did this idea of Hispanic serving come into your consciousness? What, what what's your servingness journey? So. Again, I, I, I well, I, I haven't said it yet, but I have 30 years at my institution, 30 years working, right? And so when I come to NIU as, you know, as a freshman, I'm one of 8% of the Latinx population on my campus. I could go and not see anyone all day, right? And, and so I have been able to witness the, you know, the growing number of Latinx students on my campus and working at the Latino Center and seeing that it was in a building that had a Latino Resource Center and the Center for Latino and Latin American Studies, where they had a minor in Latino and Latin American Studies. Sadly, when I first started, students didn't know about it. But that's where the serviness comes, right? That validation, that seeing your language, your culture, your community lifted and, and valued and seeing that it, there's, you know, there's knowledge there, there's worth there. And it's through that minor that I start to get 
you know, between that and another, another episode or another instance later that I get activated to wanting to help students to see. And so I made it my mission. I made it my mission to try to sign up as many students as I could. And I'm sure people got sick of me talking about the minor in Latino studies and why they needed to take these classes. But since earning my PhD, I now teach the intro class for Latino studies. So I'm teaching Latino studies, intro to Latino studies now. And when I tell you the servingness comes in the curriculum that we have and in, 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 you know, in grounding it in students' language and culture, students said, I have never been in a class that saw me and, and recognized my family and my culture. I, I wrote a grant and I took them to the Mexican Museum of Art. And I remember, you know, one of the students standing in front of them. She's like, I've never seen our culture displayed like this before. These kids are 18, 19 years old, and they've never seen this. Right. And they're from the Chicagoland area, not in Chicago because she was from a suburb. But that's there's that servingness piece. Right. That validation piece, the programming that we do, the bringing authors, bringing speakers like you, like Prisca Dorcas Mojica Rodriguez, bringing people to talk about, you know, who we are and, and battling imposter syndrome and being at predominantly white institutions. That's that servingness that comes. Right. And, and it needs to be there before we hit that HSI. That was one thing that some of my compañeras at, at NIU that we've been doing this work. We're like, we're not waiting. We're doing it now. Right. So there has been a task force that's put together. There are programs. I will say from the top down, super intentional. Our president is amazing, a great supporter, you know, embraces initiatives, diversity initiatives, embraces this. Our our um, AVP of admissions is a Latina and sees the value, has done Bienvenido events where we've welcomed families in Spanish and, you know, and have them there. Um, so there is so much that we've been doing as far as serving us. The other piece is that Yes, you know, uh, the, a lot of our students are first generation. So putting in programs in place to help educate them, but also fund them, right? Don't just bring our students to our colleges, get them through our colleges. We need to graduate these students, right? Otherwise, it's a disservice. And so having a program that we have called the Husky Pledge that says, which is open to undocumented students too, that a freshman have a 3.0 GPA and their family makes below $75,000 a year, we will pay their tuition and fees. And they could have that all four years if they keep a certain GPA, right? It's about making sure they know how to, to manage their time, how to study, how to do those pieces. Um, we have, we have, you know, obviously student peer mentors. We have so much built into the system, but in the servingness, for, particularly for Latino or Latinx students, is building that community for them. Right. We do have Greek orgs. I really feel like uh, we, you know, Gina, you and I chatted a little bit about this before we went on here, was that those Greek communities, they do give our students that sense of family that they may be lacking. Right. And so having our, our Greek orgs there and showing that support is important as well. So we do have that in place on our campus. It's a pretty vibrant community um, and training as far as other ways of serving this. Right. There's so many. I'm like, where, where do I start? Um, just just making sure that we have staff that can greet our parents in Spanish, right? That mm -hmm. can greet our students, even because even just to get to our campus. I had a mother say to me the other day, I just don't know the way. No sabemos el camino, right? Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. we want to get there, but they don't know how to get there. So we need to be giving them this information and meeting with them and making that time. That's one good thing with COVID. It allows me to open Zoom rooms and chat with parents to jump into to bilingual meetings, you know, BPACs. Uh, and meet with, you know, like 75 parents at a time and share what it means to go to college, how their children can get to college. And once they get to college, what we're going to do to support you. Domestic tuition, right? Our Husky Pledge, um, even, even scholarships that are from community colleges to the four-year institution that help pay their tuition and fees. And specifically this year for undocumented students, we became a dream.us partner college. We were supposed to take 10 students and help them get to zero with tuition fees. I'm so proud to say we're taking 21 this year. And so getting them in and helping them and then doing all the wraparound services so that we truly do serve our students and not just enroll our students. Yes, absolutely. You have answered all the questions already. You wrapped it up. You answered all the emerging HSI. <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna pull you back a little bit because you you jumped us in um, as part of your serving us, right? But I mean, you start 
your your you told us about your servingist journey um is br- bigger than HSI, right? Which I think mm-hmm. is important that it, serving this isn't just about being an HSI. It's actually for many of us, it's just part of who we are, right? Like serving our communities is actually just in our core. Um, and I know that's the case with you. Um, but the idea of being an emerging HSI is such an important piece. And you're, you're sharing a lot of things, um, that, that Northern Illinois university has been doing. Um, some of the emerging HSIs want to know, are, are grappling with the actual like recruitment piece. So can you talk us through some of that, like your office of admissions, you know, your outreach folks, you've mentioned some sort of like bilingual stuff, like talk us through that piece. Like how do you just focus on the enrollment, not just getting the campus ready, but like you need the numbers. So what are y'all doing around those, those efforts? So um, I wish that I had uh, Mayra Lagunas with me, who is the AVP of admissions. She's a dynamo. She's the one who's bringing these Bienvenido events, right? That intentionality is there. They are hiring admissions staff that are bilingual. Right. And not just in Spanish and other languages as well, but but definitely we have, I think last I checked, I, I want to say I'm, I have to go back and look, but I might, we might have four or five bilingual uh, staff. They also have given, um, they have made one an undocumented liaison to my office. So one of their staff is a liaison. Uh, and that was because of the undocumented students. That was something that they demanded that we need someone in admissions so we don't have to wait a year or two years to find the center right? We want to, we want that help at the beginning. So that, that piece is there, that intentionality, that those events that are there, um, when they have, when they have a welcome days or orientations, you know, we're tabling, not my center particularly, but the Latino center is right. The Latino resource center is there to show, Hey, we're here. We're here to support you. Do you need resources? Our financial aid office knows about our centers, our financial aid office and other centers know about my center in particular. So if a student were to come up and say they're undocumented, they know to direct them to me. Right. So it's all that communication and working collaboratively because we can't do these in silos. We have to work across the board because this HSI work and the serviness has to go beyond a Latino center. Right. It has to spill into financial aid, to admissions, to mental health, wellness, to academic advising. Everyone has to have a seat at this table to lift up our students and make sure that we are enrolling them, retaining them and graduating them. And so that's some of how we do it. I will say, you know, we've done two of those Bienvenido events. And to have a parent come up to me and say, I'm going to send Miha to the school because I know there are people here who are going to care about her. That's mm-hmm. the other piece in the servingness piece that we need to talk about is that when I see our admission staff, when I see people, you can tell they care, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we, we're so worried about being professionals that we forget we can be compassionate and we can care también. Like we don't have to strip that from who we are. Um, I love a Valenzuela, Valenzuela's book about subtractive schooling when she talks about to authentically care for our students. I am unashamed and unapologetic about how much I love these students. You know, and I know some people are like, oh, you're not being professional. No, I'm being human, right? I'm being realistic. And if you show the students you care, they're going to come and, and seek those services. They're going to come and look for that support that they so desperately need sometimes, you know. And, and that was one of the things the student, one of the students said to uh, on a panel yesterday. We did a social justice camp for educators. And one of the undocumented students said, be authentic, be transparent, right? Because if you're not, students are going to know and they're not going to seek you out. And so in that servingness, there has to be that authentic caring for our students and, and, and recognizing that you might have told the student the same procedure like 50 times, but this is the first time this student is hearing it, right? So yes, we do sound like broken records sometimes, but we have to keep doing that work again and again because we have a new group of students coming in, new parents coming in. But if parents see us there, if parents see us caring, that enrollment piece gets easier, because parents do, we're missing a big part. This shout out to my cohort, Hermana Trisha Rosado, who is at NEIU and heads the initiatives for mm-hmm. HSI at NEIU. She always talks about that parent piece, and she's 100% right. And, and you know, we know that parents need to be involved in this process. The more we bring our parents in, the more we're going to get these students to come to our institutions, right? Te los ganas y ganaste. Like, that's it. You know, bring them in, bring them in, win them over, and then you're going to win over a new recruit, a new student that's going to enroll at your institution. 
Yes, you're y'all are doing it right. Like the family piece is essential. I added families into my recent book because I'm like, families, students don't leave their families, Latina students in particular do not leave their families. They go home at the end of the day, right back to the families, right? Um, so yeah, if you're not engaging the families, you might not get this student, right? So I think you, yeah, yeah, that that's such an important piece. I'm glad y'all are are thinking about that. And bilingually because <laughs> that yeah. that's the reality right is you you need to be able to communicate with families in their preferred language absolutely yeah absolutely. yep so you've seen the institution go from like what like two three percent latina students all the way up to 21 percent. you've been there that long eight percent yes yes <laughs> <laughs> anniversary <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. You, you, it's not that at all, uh, but just amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I have been there since it was 8%. From what I remember, I, I have to go back and look, but I do remember that number because even as a freshman, I thought, how many of us are there here? And it was only mm-hmm. 8%, I think is what the number was back in the day. And now we're at 21 with our freshman class being at 24%. We enrolled the most diverse freshman class in the history of our institution this past year. And I'm proud of it because my daughter is a freshman this year at my institution. Mm. And so she says, mom, it's beautiful. The diversity around when you hop on a bus, she's like, it's great. And not only do we enroll the most diverse class, we also enrolled the, the class that had a, a high GPA, a pretty decent GPA, right? And that's the thing. We went test blind, too, when we talk about serving mm. it, right? An ACT, SAT score does not tell the story or the, the potential of a student. And so we went test blind. And I don't know if it was last year or the year before. And that has allowed more students to enter our spaces. And people still will be like, oh, when they think test blind, they think we're just accepting everyone. No, you know, we are we have some wonderful, like gifted, intelligent students that are coming to our campus. Right. Just because you remove that barrier of that exam. Some people just don't test well. Yep. It's discriminatory test too. We know Absolutely. that. Like the data yeah. show, it's clear. <laughs> so we we know, especially to uh, bilingual people, right? Like multilingual mm-hmm. people or English language learners, they really, there's really a challenge with the test. So and I think too, to that point, when you're talking about bilingual students, I think we also need to be mindful. I feel like there's this um, bias against um, students who have accents, right? And mm-hmm. I see this a lot with my immigrant students. I have a student who is, you know, a Nigerian student studying nursing, and he is brilliant. They hear the accent, and they think he isn't smart. They hear our Latino students with an accent, and they make these assumptions. These students are amazing, right? Brilliant students. And and we have to remind ourselves and do some of that bias training, right? Talking Mm -hmm. about what are our biases and what are we doing and, and making sure like that work is tied into this. Because a lot of those are, you know, those assumptions are built in there. We need to tie in the work of honoring the community cultural wealth, like Dr. Tarayosa talks about, right? And mm-hmm. making sure that we're seeing our students from an asset-based lens and not a deficit-based lens. And, not, and even teaching our students to tell their stories that way. Because so, so, so often they come from those environments that have been oppressive and they oppress themselves. And so teaching them to value what they have and what they bring and when they write those essays to win scholarships, that they do it from an asset-based lens and not as having only deficits. Yes. And I can see that being very personal because you told us in your story, that was oh, your yeah. situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I want, wow. I, I know what it can happen when, when you fall victim to that, right? To that Eurocentric value and that's all you see around you. And so I'm trying to instill that, that you do have value and you don't have to give up your, your language or your culture or your family, right? Mm-hmm. To be here. Or your accent, bring it. Exactly, exactly. Bring it, it's beautiful. I do so I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when you tell you the story of NIU becoming an HSI, it sounds really positive, like everybody's on board and everybody's moving with it. We're all moving towards servingness. Um, tell us about the flip side, which is challenges. Okay. <laughs> Any kind of challenges y'all have faced? I assume there have been some. Yes, so obviously we're trying to recruit more faculty. Right. That's always the biggest one. And it's not that we 
it's not that we're not being intentional, right? We have been trying to do that work. I shout out, uh, other shout out to my amazing boss, who sadly is going to be leaving us soon. But Dr. Ed Hill Walden, who is the chief diversity officer, has been very intentional with working with our HR and had over, and oversaw HR for a short period of time. And so making sure that we are, you know, trying to reach candidates that will, that are Latino, Latina, you know, Latinx identifying that will want to come to our institution and serve our students. So that is something that, um, you know, we are looking for and trying to do. And, and we definitely are lacking in that area. That is something that that's the flip side when I think of that. Right. The other part is not every Latino student might feel comfortable coming to our centers. Right. Or knows about our centers. We also have to recognize that we have a big commuting population. A lot of our students and commuters sometimes just come to campus and leave. So how are we reaching them with that serving this piece if they don't even know we're there? If they only go to one building, go to their car and head home, right? So the messaging has to be there. Um, the faculty have to be there. Uh, and, and then I'm, you know, I'm just trying to think of the programming has been so much better um, as of, I'd say, three or four years ago because we have... Um, funding. We implemented a diversity fee for our students. And so we actually looked at all the student fees they were paying and they were paying a lot. We recalculated it. They actually pay less fees than they used to, but we added a diversity fee and that supports any diversity initiatives on our campus through our cultural centers. So now we're able to bring, you know, because everyone's like, oh yeah, we want this happen. We want this program, but how are you going to pay for it? Or how are you going to fund it? Right. So now we're very intentional. Our programming is not ex is not exclusionary. Everyone is welcome to those spaces. Right. But we are now able to talk about topics that are specific to the Latinx population and bring speakers and poets and writers and performers that are in and be very intentional with our programming. And so that's something that I think it was kind of like, oh, we're struggling, but now we're in a good space. OK, thank you for those. And the faculty one for sure is. A challenge everywhere that that is definitely a struggle bus for yeah. all the HSIs yeah. like we Wait. need to figure out that formula soon and quick absolutely but if you go back to like the 1960s when you look at the history of student protesting right even in the 60s they were asking for that they were asking for cultural centers for faculty it's like when are we going to get this right and mm. and when you look at the percentage of you know Latinx folks graduating with PhDs that's where we're not getting it right Right. We need to build that pipeline and to remember that first gen in college is usually first gen in grad school. Right. Because they're first yeah. the first time as a, you know, no one else has that experience to guide them from their family. So um, that's, I think, a big part of it. But we're still fighting the same battles that our students were from the 60s. And yep. before, you know, yep. The same exact battles. It's yep. wild. I mean, people are still demanding cultural centers. Right. In 2023. Yeah. Students are still saying we want cultural centers, even at HSIs where they're like, you know, 25% at least. Um, it still matters. We still need it. You know, you know, and and I think about I was on a, a an undocu chat with advisors across the country, and it does matter. And you're seeing all these, you know, DEI, anti-DEI laws, right? Defunding DEI, not even being able to say diversity, not even being able and I worry for, for those students, for those institutions, for how are you going to serve your students if your hands are tied, right? How are you going to really be there and do this work? And how are the students going to feel like seen and heard, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's going to be really difficult. I'm very fortunate to be in a state that values, you know, diversity that values immigrant students that, you know, put a ban on banning books recently, right? Like we are not going to ban books in our state and we're behind these initiatives that are to support all students, regardless of ethnicity. Right. And so, yeah, it, it's, those fights are there and we have a long way to go still. So. Yeah. I love the ban to ban books. Yeah, yeah. No banning books. There's a ban on banning books. You can't do that. It's so that like, ridiculous. Yeah, so ridiculous. So you've mentioned undocumented students several times. Um, let's talk about specifically about HSIs and undocumented students. This is an area that people ask me about often, right? When I'm out working with HSIs. Um, and, and you mentioned already, like being uh, undocumented does not 
necessarily mean you're Latinx, Latine, right? It's not an ethnicity. It's encompassing of many groups. Um, so how are you as in your role, serving as the director of the Undocumented Student Services, um, how are you intertwining your servingness already of undocumented students? Because you've been doing that historically with HSI. How do they come together? How do you how do you make those things work for the folks listening about how they can better serve their undocumented students with their HSI efforts? It's about collaboration, right? I know my partners across campus. I know at the Latino Center that I can collaborate with someone to bring uh, a Latino author who's talking about migration or who's talking about mental health, you know, or mental wellness with immigrants. So that that could cover, you know, bringing someone who who holds that identity where the students can actually see themselves or themes or topics around that. So that partnering is really important. You know, at my center, we do several things. We do support services where we collaborate with campus and community partners, you know, immigration lawyers and host programs focused on topics that are critical to our undocumented student population. Like I said, mental health, immigration, legislation, DACA renewals, and the list goes on. But folding into those, you know, Latinx individuals who are experts to come because even though, as I said, it is not an ethnicity, it is the majority of the population I serve. So I try to be fair and I will bring in, you know, uh, an undocu Black uh, professional, an undocu Asian professional, undocu Latino or Latinx professional, right? So I do I, I do a variety and try to be intersectional in the work that I'm doing. And that is intentionality to include all and not some. And in there, I'm serving the Latino students or the Latinx students who are undocumented. We have so much that we, we offer our students from you know, our website to our resources. Obviously, when we're pushing out scholarships and information, the majority of those are for our Latinx students, right? So there's that servingness in there, but always being mindful to offer services to the other students. But I think supporting them just comes to talking to the financial aid. You know, We are now um, one of the things we do that I think is a, a could be a best practice, we work with the Financial Wellness Center at our institution and the Director of Scholarships, love their team. They actually give us a, a meeting once a month where we sit and we say, okay, so I had a student who was having problems with this. Could you help us like eliminate this barrier? Oh, I had a student who needs to do this. Can you help us eliminate that? One of their counselors who was a bilingual counselor said, you know, I really can't talk about students specifically unless they give me permission to do so. So we have developed an email that students will send to Financial Wellness that says, I give Sandy Lopez and Angelica Mendoza from the Undocumented Student Resource Center permission to advocate on my behalf. Game changer. Now I can sit with a student and the financial wellness advisor and say, hey, you didn't finish the step in the alternative FAFSA to get state aid. We need you to get this form in. Oh, my mom's really scared. Let me talk to your mom. We'll get her on the phone. We solve those problems. We eliminate those barriers and we help them get the access to the resources they need. It's not just there. We also collaborate with mental health, with academic advisors, with career services, with, you know, we're all over working in different departments and going into classrooms to let students know that we are there and we're there to serve them. We are there to work with and for them always. And, and I, I say all this in the work that we do, and I can't say, you know, that we do this without students because it's because of the undocumented students of Dream Action and IU that my center, my position, the funding we have and the programs we have exists. The graduates, the alumnas, the alum, you know, the alum, they come back and pay it forward. They come back and teach the students how to advocate and teach them they have power and that they can ask and make demands of an institution that's taking their money so they should be getting services. Right. And so our serving is wrapped up into all of that, teaching our students or helping our students, empowering them and amplifying their issues, but saying, hey, you have agency, you know, and you have a right to ask for these services. And that's a lot of how we do that serving is too. Um, yes, we love to hear it. I um, I mean, I'm going to ask you one more question, but I, I was, um, as you were talking, like, I mean, you have this theme of like, collaboration right like in your spirit right is like uh, like this collaborator like that seems to be the response to a lot of the questions is like well I collaborate right like with other folks on campus that's that's so powerful um and so thank you for sharing that because I don't think people always collaborate on campuses and and perhaps it's hindering their servingness because yeah. uh, it seems to be working for you it, it definitely it's a win 
You know, when we can reach more students, when we can, because we can do it alone, but wow, it's going to be a lot of work and we're going to be very limited to who our outreach, right? But when I partner with three or four centers and five departments, wow, look at, you know, that's another thing. We make a lot of our events, what we call passport, you know, they're passport approved. So business students get credit for it, honor students get credit for it, and we're seeing students come. Are they coming for the credit? Yeah, but some of them are leaving empowered and with a fresh new look on something that they had no idea, a topic or an issue. And they're coming back, right? So I think there's that collaboration in so many areas. You have to look and see where do we have potential to, to like do more with less, right? Because why not all do one program as opposed to six of us doing six different programs and, and splitting the students up? Why not have a collective program and bring everyone together? Yes, exactly. The other thing you said that I thought was really powerful was that you, you basically showed, told us that you got around a policy, which is FERPA, right? Um, which is a pretty powerful and important policy, right? For those of us in education um, about sharing students' information, right? Um, but you students can allow you to have access to that. Um, yeah. I think that's something else people need to figure out is like there's policies, but there's ways to still support students without violating the policy. <laughs> you know, you right. just got to figure it out. And, and it sounds like y'all, y'all figured it out and you said it game changer. I, absolutely. I can't tell you how, you know, students have, um, they get paralyzed, right? They, they see something and they're like, Oh, they, they freeze. They, they can't figure something out. They shut the laptop. They don't look at the email again. And I'm like, no, where, where are we stopping? Why are we not getting all these students to finish their, their, their alternative FAFSA? Or in our case, too, we also help mixed status students. So U.S.-born children of undocumented parents. Mm-hmm. Those status students weren't applying for FAFSA because they were so scared. And once we were able like, no, you do qualify. Let us help you. It's not that scary. We can talk to your parents. They're, now they're getting Pell and MAP funding that they weren't getting before. Right. So we talk about changing like people's lives and livelihoods. It's it's a possibility. And before that, they couldn't talk to us. And and that's where we were so frustrated. Like, we can't talk to you. Or a student would say, can I invite Sandy into this meeting? They're like, "Okay, you can invite her in. And then when we found out, like, like I said, Angie Vargas, when she came up with this brilliant idea where it gave us permission because they can give permission to anyone. Right. Yep. Yep. But once they gave us permission. We, I can't, and now I have students who aren't undocumented who are like, hey, my friend told me that you're really good with this. Can I give you permission? <laughs> so, so it's not even like if, if anyone were like, oh, aren't you worried that people are going to know that you're, you know, only helping? I'm like, I'm not only helping undocumented students. That list is huge. And it's a lot of U.S. citizens that are coming to me that are from like, oh, my girlfriend, she told me that you did this. And can you help me? And so here we are. And so that has grown. But yeah, it definitely is a yes. good Yes, absolutely. So important. So the other question I wanted to ask you about as far as serving undocumented students. So you said something else really important, which was that you are in a state that is friendly, right? Illinois is friendly. I believe so too, because I've worked, you know, with Mm -hmm. Illinois HSIs a lot. Um, What about for folks listening, like in Texas or Florida, right? Like not so friendly, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of HSIs and a lot of undocumented people in those states as well. So like, what are your thoughts on that? How do, how do people continue to do this work in when the climate it isn't conducive to, to serving undocumented students. Wow. You know, you asked that question. I did a, a training for educators yesterday for a social justice camp, and I was showing the map of educational, like tuition equity, state tuition, in-state tuition, um, state aid, and Texas was on there. And I said, I don't know how much longer it's going to be there, right? Um, because there are a lot of institutions that are, you know, they're uh, these states are anti-immigrant, right? Pushing forward a lot of anti-everything, quite honestly. Um, you know, these these uh, this harmful legislation. But for those states, I mean, I remember when it wasn't always easy to help undocumented students, right? It, it, the climate that changed, the culture that changed on my campus because of the undocumented students. It was our institution where these students actually came out and, you know, and they followed suit to to an event that happened in Chicago in 2010 called Coming Out of the Shadows that that borrows from the LGBTQ community coming out with their sexual orientation. They were coming out with their status, right? And they were challenging the narratives and the anti-immigrant views that people had about immigrants. Well, our students started doing that in 2014. And that's how they started to shift the culture. They started going into classrooms and educating people. They started to organize with community organizations to help pass legislation, talking to legislators. And so what I say to people in those other states is 
don't lose hope, right? Because as as Marie Kamba says, uh, hope is a discipline, right? Hope is a discipline, and we have to work at it every day, and and we have to we have to get up every day to know that we can be hopeful and to create change where we are. And I remember meeting with the students one time in the Latino Center, and we were trying to create change. And I said, you know what? Maybe at the federal level, we're not going to be able to do it. Maybe at the state, we can't do it yet. But in our local communities, can we create change? Yes, we can. Can we create resources? Can we reach out to people? Yes, we can. And we started there. We started our campus. We started working with organizations in our communities. We started advocating at the state level. We advocate at the federal level as well, right? And so for those people, you know, you're not alone. That's the other thing. Students need to know, que no están solitos, you're not alone. That is the one thing I tell students when I meet with them. I said, I know you've had to do a lot of heavy lifting. I know this is heavy for you. But what I'm going to tell you is you are no longer alone. You have someone who's here with you. And you've never really been alone. There's a community here for you. You just didn't know we were here. And so we need to let those people in Texas and in Florida know que no están solitos. You are not alone. We have you. People care for you. People want to help you. And we're going to fight like hell, right? Sorry, I don't know if I can say that, but, you know, I, I had to temper that one. I was like, let me pull it to that word. Um, but but we're here to advocate and be with you. We saw what happened in Arizona. We saw what was going down. And, and organizers went in that state and fought for years to flip it blue right? And you better believe people are going to be going into states. You better believe I already have time slotted to make calls to the Latino community in Florida and in Texas come election time, right? Like everybody, you may not live in those states, but could you do your part? You can do your part. You can make calls. You can get in and try to encourage people to get out to vote, right? Because right now our vote is our power. We need to be voting, uh, we need to be educating our young voters to educating our communities that they have a right to vote and that they have a right to ask for it in Spanish. The year that Obama won, I became an election judge because there was a newspaper article that said we needed Spanish speaking election judges. Do I know the words for election terminology in Spanish? Hell no. Did I care? Hell no. But was I there helping the Latinos, you know, learn how to vote and how to move the machines? Yes, I was there. And I helped so many people from the community get out and vote. And so we need to be doing that. So don't lose hope. Be actively engaged. Seek opportunities and organize, you know, organizations that are there to support you because we are here to support you. And there are national resources that your students can still take advantage of. I'm going to plug the dream.us for the lockout states that don't have any support. The dream.us will give a full scholarship for students from lockout states and send them to friendly states and institutions that will support them and they will not have to pay a, a single tuition dollar or fee. And so look for those resources. And if you can't find United We Dream is a good one. Immigrants Rising is a good one. You know, there's so many good people doing in New York. You have the New York Blue, uh, Youth Leadership. Oh, I, I siempre se me va a But in New York, there's a, there's a org of students that hold it down for New York. Um, and they are amazing. And so I know Angie Rivera was part of that group before. Look to New York. There's people holding down. When, when people don't, or when policies are not there, when, when politicians aren't there, we're there. We have our backs, right? It's the community. It's those directly affected that have to be front and center and, and, and their issues amplified. And we have to do this work with and for them. But let them lead the way. Let them tell us what they need. Ooh, you are providing so much hope for our listeners and for me. I love it because I'm such an optimist. I, I believe that we can create a better future, right? better future for us and minoritized folks, Latina folks, like, well, yeah. And you're just, you're just so much hope. So thank you for, for that. It's so, it's just so powerful. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, the folks that are listening that are in not friendly states, it's all hope is not lost. <laughs> um, and also now they're probably going to be calling you like the, the people who aren't <laughs> undocumented and trying to get you to help them. <laughs> They, you know, they, I help students all the time from other states. I probably had 10 different states this year where I was saying, okay, let's talk about what you can and can't, you know, uh, access in our state. Because again, these laws, a lot of the tuition equity, you had to have gone to school in those states for three years, right? Or gone to high school in those states. So students can't access some of the funding in our states. But do they have access to other resources? Yes. Are there other opportunities like the dream.us or other scholarships that will help you? Yes. Um, so yeah, any, I always say, yeah, call me and, and you know what they do. 
<laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, after this episode airs, you're going to be getting more, I think. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you. So I think this leads right into our next couple questions that I wanted to ask you about, because I, I know you are very involved. You're in different advocacy organizations. You're, you're, you're an advocate at the, at the state level, at the federal level, you know, pushing for different policies. So let's talk a little bit about that, because in the Serbianist framework and in, in my new book, in the Transform HSI's book, I talk a lot about how we actually have to access those external influences in order to do serviness. Like if you're only doing it within your institution, it's not enough, right? Like there, there's there's more resources, right? Um, so yeah, let's talk about that because you are very involved with organizations such as Dream Action, NIU, and Illinois Latino Council on Higher Education. Um, how are these types of organizations supporting HSI efforts and or efforts to support um, undocumented students? Like, how are you utilizing those resources to continue to do this work? As far as uh, the Illinois Latino Council on Higher Ed, I'm I'm such a proud member to be part of ELACHE. And, and I'm proud that my institution, and when we talk about that serviness and what are we going to be doing, um, the, the fact that we're going to be hosting the conference this year. So the, 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 the conference in April will actually be at my institution. And so, you know, our mission is to work collaboratively with colleges and universities and and stakeholders to increase access, retention, and advancement for our Latinx students, and not just our students, our faculty and our staff in Illinois higher education institutions. And so that work with Elacha is super important because we're, you know, we're pushing out and students see at an annual conference that there are other professionals doing this work who are who are in higher ed, who have PhDs, who've gone on for master's degrees that have completed their degrees. So that piece, that servingness, we have a scholarship that we award, um, more than one scholarship some years to students as well. So that piece, and we're also involved heavily in policy. We have a policy team that goes to Springfield and we advocate for legislation as an organization. We go to, to um, you know, to Springfield as an organization and to advocate and to talk to politicians and and always looking at policies and eliminating barriers. So that's that piece of it. When I think about the, what we do in, you know, as part of dream action, when I say we as part of dream action, because I am so lucky to have been allowed into that space and to be trusted in that space, right? And to know my place in that space. And and I have been educated, right? As an ally, as an accomplice. I'm gonna say accomplice because I do more than just, you know, send an email or sign something or change an icon. I'm there with them and I'm willing to take the risk with them, right? But always by their lead, not taking a place instead of them. And so that piece of serviness and talking to policy, Dream Action in the beginning, like I said, we started working with organizations, uh, Family Focus Aurora, the Illinois Coalition of Immigrant and Refugee Rights, it's like ICER, okay, in, in Chicago. We started going with them to Springfield and our students started advocating and talking to legislators. We help with, with the temporary visitor's driver's license, with the Illinois Dream Act, with the licensure bill that allows our undocumented students to sit for a licensing exam with their individualized tax identification number. We went for five years to Springfield to help pass what's called the RISE Act and allowed for an alternative application for MAP funding for our students, another game changer. Students who had dropped out of college came back once they realized they could qualify for MAP funding. Last year, we helped pass the undocumented student liaison bill that creates a position like mine at every two-year and four-year public institution in the state of Illinois. We also have helped pass healthcare registry bills. We want our nursing or our, our, our healthcare professions to be able to be on the healthcare registry, right? And so um, before this meeting, I was scrambling to get here because I was actually talking to the community college deans and directors from the nursing schools to tell them, hey, your students still don't know they can be nurses. Please make sure you know the policies and we're here to tell you what they are. And when I say we, I had Representative Dagmara Avelar with me. I had Tania Cabrera from UIC collectively again, right? So we also have, um, when I talk about the work we do, institutions, undocumented student orgs from NIU, from NEIU, from um, UIC, from U of I, all these, it's a community of people that go down and humanize this issue and tell them why. Don't just, you know, don't just have us in your schools, but truly support us and help us get to that degree completion. And in 
we cannot leave this this growing population undocumented, you know, undocumented population uneducated and uncredentialed because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what policies are coming down the way. But this is not just, you know, helping our 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 colleges stay afloat by taking these undocumented students in, but helping our state economically as well, right? They're going to bring money to our state. They're going to bring that wealth to our state. So let's invest in them. And we need these laws that we're creating to help them get there. And so students, we, at my institution, the other part of serving this, we know the importance of student advocacy. We have a three-day weekend called the Power, Power Retreat, the People's Organizing Weekend Empowerment Retreat. So for three days, we bring in community organizers and, and, and past presidents of Dream Action and other student leader orgs that teach our students how to organize, strategize, and mobilize around an issue to create change on our campus, in our state, and in the institution. And when I, one more thing, when I think back to Dream Action, the work they did, it's because of them that I can do what I do. When Trump was elected in 2017, they went in front of the board of trustees and they said, we are in a state of crisis. DACA is under attack. We need you to help us. The co-presidents went to a board of trustee meeting. They didn't just show up. They brought everybody with them. They put out a, a, an action, like a, a call to action, and the community showed up. And not just students, I'm talking faculty, staff, students showed up and filled the boardroom. And they said, we need help. The board of trustees passed a resolution that day that they would help pass immigrant-friendly legislation at the state and federal level. Because of that resolution, I can talk to both our state legislative liaison and our federal legislative liaison to know about what's coming down the pipeline to say, hey, we have this new healthcare registry bill. We're going to give testimony, just letting you know, great, wonderful. They line us up. They help us make sure our messaging is okay. And so when we're doing that work, we're not doing this in by ourselves, right? Again, collaborative work that we're doing and we're able to pass these laws and our students are able to, to be involved from the very beginning until completion. Wow. You are just whew, everything. Like I said, you're giving me so much hope. And at the same time, I'm like, so how do people get to this level? Like your level of advocacy is just admirable, right? Like it's, it's, it's beautiful and so much to learn from you. Um, for people listening that are like, wow, I want to do all that. How, how do you, how do you get started? How did you get started um, in advocacy work? Cause it's, it's one thing to, to suggest it and be like, oh, you, you gotta, you gotta be the change you want to see. Right. Cause that's the reality is what you're doing. You want to see change. You, you're a freedom dreamer and you're making it happen. So how do, how do folks get, how do folks turn into you? How do, how do they do it? Well, <laughs> how do you get started? Well, <laughs> You know, I always talk about we get activated, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not for everyone. Not everyone is going to be an activist. We all have different, we all have our superpowers, right? Um, but one of them is storytelling. We all have the power of storytelling. And that was one of the things that the Illinois Coalition of Immigrant and Refugee Rights, uh, they taught us that. They taught us how to tell your story, right? And how to create change and how to humanize and how to activate people and motivate people to do the work that you're trying to get done. So for me, what, what activated me was my father was a legal permanent resident. We went in to renew his green card and the woman was horrible, Hor just yelling at my dad, you, you know, you should just speak English. You've been here in this country long enough. And my dad did speak English, but that's a whole other story. But she's yelling at him and I'm having to hold myself back because I don't know about you, but you mess with my mom and my dad, we're going to have. Yeah. So I was like, I got to go to the to the bathroom. I had to cool off. I, I legit, you know, that coraje you get that you cry because you're so pissed off. I had that and I had to wash my face and I had to tell myself, no, this woman has all the power right now. And I don't have any right now. Went back, told my dad, tragatela, tragatela, because we're going to have to swallow this sandwich that we're going to be served. And we're going to go out to eat later to wipe the bad taste out of our mouth. That was the day I was like, never again. I saw how she treated other immigrants that came into that space and she yelled at them and treated them so inhumanely and they didn't have advocates. My dad at least had me, right? And so I started volunteering at citizenship workshops with Family Focus Aurora and they taught me amazing, you know, each one teach one, right? They taught me how to do stuff. They taught me how to, to, to gather and how to tell my story and with ICER as well. And so... That's what activated me, sitting in a room with undocumented students when the DREAM Act comes up and they said they don't have enough votes to pass it and feeling the air leave the room. And I thought, this is not okay. 
No. And that's when I started advocating with undocumented students. And so I didn't learn it all right away. And they made mistakes. But you know what? It's okay in this, you know, to, to make a mistake if you're not trying to be harmful, but learn. Give people the opportunity to do better. Call them in and don't call them out and let them learn from any mistakes they may make so that they can do the work and do better. And it has been a learning process for the last over a decade now that I've been doing this work. The other reason why I'm able to do this work, because I have an amazing compañero. My husband, he's amazing. He's also an introvert. So that helps me because this allows me to get my extrovert piece out. And then he's introverted, right? So that really works well for us. But giving me the support that I need, because, you know, with my kids and stuff and, and helping, letting me do this very important work, and he sees the value in it. And I want my kids to see the value in it. Because my fa my family was always helping people. My dad always was helping a homeless person, or we had a family member living in our house, or what have you, we always helped. And that was instilled in me, right? That's my parents magic. You know, they, they pass that on to me to, to care for people to help others. But that activation for me happened with my dad, and at the immigration facility. But now you can learn from organizations. People, if you care, figure out your why, right? There's always a challenge of choice and an outcome, right? There's always a challenge of choice and outcome. What's your challenge? What's your choice and what's gonna come of it? And my challenge was that woman. And my choice was not to sit back anymore. And my outcome is I've been blessed to be in a world with beautiful, undocumented immigrants and the immigrant community and to support students and to have this knowledge and to be able to create real change, not just on my campus, but in my state. Ooh. Now I'm thinking when we suggest people hire uh, folks of color, more folks of color at HSIs to do good serving in this work. Now I'm like, you need some activists, right? Because the <laughs> you just gave me so many things to think about, right? Like, I talk about organizational change, like you are changing organizations, you're changing lives, right? Um, because of that activist in you. So yeah, I'm going to say that, that I'm going to start recommending that. Like, when is that going to be on our, on our rubric, right? Of, of review, right? we should be hiring more faculty activists, more, uh, you know, educator activists, more, more folks on campus who are, are able to make change. Because for me, that's what HSI is. HSI is about making change. And Absolutely. And, you know, I do call myself an educator activist. It took a, it took me a while. It's really funny because my, my dissertation is talking about, um, you know, student activists and identity formation. And so many of them didn't see themselves as activists. And it's not until I get into my PhD program that I'm like, wait a second. I am an activist. Okay, I'll take it, right? I'm an educator activist. And now I, I do embrace that term. Wonderful book, Working From Within, Educator Activist by Dr. Luis Urieta Jr. That book changed my life. I was like, I see myself when he talks about educator activists. I'm like, there I am. That's me. And mm. so we do need to have that advocacy piece built in and teaching our students to advocate, right? That Because the who was it? There was a student who was, came to our office one time and she said, I didn't know we could ask for these things. I said, you better ask for the moon and the stars. And then wherever you land, you land. But you ask for everything and see where you land. And, and she became a fierce advocate. I'd be like, amazing advocate, right? And an activist. And but she still to the end, she would only call herself a leader. No, I'm a leader. I'm like, no, you're more than that. <laughs> yes, it's a whole other level. Thank you. And thank you for the resource um, for sharing that. So, all right. Final question. No one gets out of the pod without answering the question. ¿Qué pasa? HSIs. Okay. So I guess para mí, because you said like I can like a few sentences, right? I guess the biggest thing, ¿qué estamos haciendo para apoyar nuestros estudiantes, familias y comunidad? What are we doing to make sure our students are getting to and through our institutions? If we take their tuition dollars, we need to offer curriculum and resources and funding that will help our Latinx students not just survive, but thrive at our institutions of higher ed, right? So when we talk about que pasa or, you know, come on, que esta pasando? Because there's no accountability that I, you know, we need to be accountable. When I first learned that there wasn't really any accountability, I'm like, como? Como que people are taking this money and not serving students with this money? That what? Why? Why are we not saying no? You need to get on this, and, we, and you're not going to get these funds if you're not truly serving our students, right? So I think that's that awakening and that activism, man. If you're a student in the HSI, listen up. 
you need to start saying, where is that HSI money going, right? How are you supporting me? What are you serving me with this? How is this coming to me? You know, and it's not going to line their pockets directly, but is it going to create change, you know, institutional change, curricular change, funding change, you know, what is it going to do at your institution to better support you and those that come after you? Because sometimes the work you're doing and the fight that you have or the advocacy that you have is not going to, you're not going to see the benefits of it, but five years, 10 years on the road, you're going to see the benefit. So when we say que pasa, how are we really serving our students? We need to be accountable to that. And our students need to be looking up and saying, hey, que pasa, Where's, where, what's happening? What's with the program? Where are, those, you know, where are that funding going? And how are you supporting me in my community in this place? Exactly. The call to action. You've just wrapped it up in a in a big bowl. The que pasa HSI really is a call to action. And you have embodied that this whole like episode. So thank you. In English and Espanol también. I love it. So thank you so much. We've had it's been an honor talking to you. Thanks for having me.